0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Melissa and Lori Love Literacy, Literacy Podcast. We are very excited uh, to have our guests here today. We have two fabulous women who are just changing the face of education and speaking out about it. Melissa. Melissa. Tell me why you're excited to talk to the Right to Read yeah. Project gals today. Well,
1: I just spent the past half hour like rereading all their blogs, <laughs> which was super exciting. Um, but just like so, it, just like always, like hits me in the gut some of the things that they talk about. And one was like something about. We just think it's kind of inevitable that we'll have struggling readers in upper grades. And I was like, oh, as as a secondary person, I'm like, yes, that's how I feel all the time. Like, we just are like, yes, they're behind. Let's keep moving. Um, And so, yeah, I know they have all these ways that um, they're pushing for. Let's not do that. (laughs) So let's talk to them about it.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So welcome, Lonnie and Margaret. How are you? Welcome to the podcast. happy to be here with you. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. And we know it's, um, it's much earlier there. So thank you for spending your Friday happy hour with us.
2: <laughs> what better way to spend happy hour than talking about literacy? It is,
0: we we totally agree. <laughs> um, so we would love to hear just a little snapshot of who you are. Um, I have to confess, I, so I stalked the girls from another podcast and when I heard their stories, I was like, we have to get them on our podcast and they were kind <laughs> enough to um, jump over to our podcast too. So um, Lonnie and Margaret, would you mind just introducing yourself, sharing a little bit about your background and um, where you are now in the, in the field?
2: So I'm Margaret, and I got my credential about 15 years ago. I went to a social justice-focused program at UC Berkeley, um, and I went there because I knew that I wanted to get into education because of my belief that we should deliver high-quality instruction for all students. I was gung-ho about it. I did a two-year program um, and got a um, credential and a master's, went into the classroom and like the typical teacher, didn't really know what I was doing, but I did my best to try to figure it out. And I was lucky enough to land in a high-performing school in a high-performing district. So a lot of the things that I didn't know, I didn't know I didn't know. And so I was able to um, go for about seven years feeling like an effective teacher because the kids came into me reading and they left me reading even better. And I felt like that's what teaching was. Um, But eventually, I felt like I needed to do something else. I called it a sabbatical. So I went for a (laughs) sabbatical um, doing some curriculum development for about a year and a half or two years, and I worked in a nonprofit and missed the kids so much, I felt like I needed to Mm -hmm. go back to a school site. So that was my first entree into coaching. I became a literacy coach and reading interventionist at a low-performing school in one of the big urban districts in my area. And it was a complete, I don't know what you call it, but like I was a fish out of water. I had never been in a low performing school before. I had never been a literacy coach before. I had never been responsible for teaching kids how to read before. And all of a sudden I was realizing all of these things that I had been unprepared for Mm -hmm. um, in years of teaching. So, I dove in really fast to try to figure out well, how do we teach kids who are in primary grades to learn how to read? And how do we teach upper grade struggling readers? And I did a ton of research, did a ton of experimenting on children, which I have mixed feelings about, um, <laughs> trying to see what would actually work for them. And somewhere along the line, um, we figured out what was working at my school site. We started to get um, results we had never seen before because we were delivering high quality, explicit, systematic instruction to first graders. And we were seeing changes happen um, that the school had never before seen. And we were really lucky. We had a funder who had access to millions of dollars walk into our school and wonder what we were doing right. And she's like, (laughs) we need to grow this thing. Um, And she introduced me to Lonnie and we started working on a grant-funded project to do the same thing at 10 schools and then 15 schools. Um, And that's the work that we were in for the past few years. Lonnie, that's your cue. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, that's like
3: fate. Go ahead. <laughs> yes. So before we were able to meet and really dive into this work, I I began teaching sixth graders and I was a part of Teach for America. So as we all know, it's kind of a crash course and uh, a broad overview of like engagement strategies, backwards planning, but not the core content. Like Margaret, I was I was missing that. I didn't know how how children really learn to read. And I saw at the low performing school that I was at huge gaps, um, both in foundational literacy and in foundational math, because I was a math teacher at the time, but none of Mm. my kids could access the content at all. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe some, a pocket of them, but it was a, a large majority that had a lot of trouble accessing content. So after two years of doing whatever I could do, um, hodgepodging, uh, whatever I could find to support their needs. I moved to third grade with the intention of addressing the gaps I was seeing.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> and
3: I encountered third graders who didn't yet know their letters and they were frustrated. I, I was frustrated too. So it, it became really ab- like abundantly clear that it was essential for the foundational skills to be taught to mastery in the primary grade. So I moved to kindergarten and that's where <laughs> I spent the rest of my teaching time But still, when I I was at a school in a balanced literacy district and I didn't have until my very last year a great coach or somebody who who can really share with me how kids learn how to read according to like evidence-based instruction. I had no scope and sequence. I was doing guided reading. Um, So it was kind of like DIY and opportunistic instruction. And in my last year teaching, I was in a program that finally taught me some of the evidence-based strategies and I became obsessed with like, okay, all teachers need access to this. It's not fair for teachers to not have access to the Mm -hmm. materials and the knowledge to teach all kids to read. And it's it's definitely not fair for the kids. And so uh, I started looking around for ways that I could could spread that message and support as many kids as possible Um, and that's when I met Margaret and we were in the this early literacy cohort together um, to really grow the message and and grow the impact
0: oh so good your your story's like fate I love that you're you two connected it's do you live like near each other
2: We live near each other. (laughs) And I think one of the things that is really neat is that we both kind of decided at the end of our grant funded project, we decided to try to ground ourselves back in a school site. And so I'm teaching first grade this year and trying to apply everything that I learned in theory into practice. And Lonnie is over there at her school. Go ahead.
3: Yeah, I'm currently an assistant principal of instruction at one site, trying to apply everything that we know is true and that we're learning and it's working. Like who said that even with distance learning that kids can't (laughs) learn to read? I I tested a a student today who at the beginning of the year was reading 21 words correct per minute at like 65% accuracy. Now 77 words correct per minute with a hundred percent accuracy. And that's like I don't know, half the year, a little over half of a year through distance learning yeah. and just, you know, implementing evidence-based instruction.
2: Well, and I think one of the things so so excited for that kiddo and so excited for that teacher, <laughs> but also sure. so excited for the fact that you know how important that is too. Like there was a point in time mm-hmm. when I was like, who cares about correct words per minute? Like, who cares mm-hmm. about <laughs> trying to create speed readers? We care about reading for meaning. Like I had no idea. That there was so much meaning behind getting your reading rate to match your speaking rate and how that was going to allow you to use your language comprehension to understand the text that was in front of you. Like, I think you and I have done so much learning together to actually know what we're supposed to focus on, like what meaningful data is and what we're looking for and our students to make sure they're really set up for success later down the road. Yeah, I'm... Go ahead.
3: I was just
1: going to say, I'm so glad to hear you all say that because I am fighting that battle now in Baltimore for our secondary students because we don't even test them on fluency. And I'm Mm -hmm. like, we have so many students behind and we don't even know (laughs) really anything about how they read. So I'm just glad to hear you all say that. It makes me feel like I'm doing the right thing. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things Lonnie and
2: I talk a lot about in PD, so we lead PD together through the Right to Read Project. Um, And one of the things that we've talked a lot with teachers about is helping them understand that like 60 correct words per minute-ish is that sweet spot where kids can start transitioning into reading in their heads Mm -hmm. um, and because they're able to sustain the thought as they're finishing the sentence. Um, So I'm thinking about that kid who can suddenly transition into silent reading and get absorbed in books and actually love the experience of reading because it's not so burdensome anymore, Mm -hmm. feeling so happy for them. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Yeah, it's that transition between disfluent and fluent reading. It's yeah. like now he, he's making way. He's He can attend to meaning, and that, that changes everything.
0: Lonnie, can you tell us the grade level of the student? Yeah, it's a second grader. Second grader. That's awesome. Good. Getting yeah. caught up. Yeah. 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 Good. <laughs> so I think one of the things that we talk about on our podcast a bit is well, a lot <laughs> is, <laughs> is the, quote, blue part of um, – Scarborough's rope. Um, And when one of the things that Melissa and I had to come to terms with in in a lot of conversations, probably just like you two did, like lots of offline conversations, making sense of a lot of stuff, um, is that when we say science of reading, we mean the entire reading rope. Um, And I think that we're at a point in time where there is a whole lot of attention being drawn to that red part of the rope. So all of those foundational skills and the, the the things that kids need to actually decode and to say the words. Um, But there also needs to be an equal or an equally important attention drawn to the blue part of the rope. Um, So I'm like just really curious in your work um, and what are your thoughts on like, how can we draw equal attention to that blue part of the rope, to that language comprehension piece?
2: It's funny that you're bringing that up because um, Lonnie and I are tasked with doing PD for 73 of California's lowest performing schools. Mm-hmm. So uh, yesterday- That's like
0: that's like not a problem, right? That's a really yeah. easy task. <laughs> no,
2: totally. no big deal. Um But I'm just thinking about last week's session because Lonnie was just like, how did it go? What's, go-? You know, what's going on with, we did a PD on, um, the first one was on the word recognition side of Scarborough's Rope. And then this past week was on the language comprehension side of things. And a lot of really important things came up in that discussion. The first thing that was really important was for us as educators to re-understand what comprehension is. So a lot of us came into the profession thinking that teaching reading comprehension strategies, like teaching predicting and inferring and making text to self-connections, was teaching comprehension Instead of realizing that those are of metacognitive <laughs> strategies you employ when you have already comprehended the text, <laughs> you have to already understand the text in order to yeah. be able to talk about uh, an inference that you're drawing, for example. Mm-hmm. And so um, when we were working with these educators in this past week, one of the things that was really helpful was to realize that um, when we're talking about comprehension, we're talking about the synthesis of word recognition and language comprehension but we're not really well trained for teaching language comprehension. We're not really well supported in our curricular materials and our professional development and our training to understand like, how do you help kids understand a grammatically complex sentence? Or how do you help kids understand that it's figurative language that they're reading? Or how do you help kids be able to understand the lack of cohesion in a text and you're jumping from sentence to sentence trying to figure out what the author didn't say in between those pieces. And I think that's the area that we're the weakest in as a profession. And it makes sense that there's a lot of conversation about the word recognition section because that's actually easier to understand. There's better curricular resources for it. There's better training for teachers in it. Um, but there's no And it's easier to assess <laughs> it. Yes. Totally easier to assess. Absolutely. Yeah. It feels more concrete. Mm-hmm. You can see the growth in that area much more clearly.
0: Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah. So one of the things that we talk about as well is equity um, and how, you know, really addressing the entire rope is a lever for equity for all students. And so I'm curious to what you all think about this. Um, why and how are, are, is addressing the knowledge building piece um, alongside of that word wreck piece, the epitome of equity? that's not a big question at all. So
3: <laughs> it, is, okay, it is knowledge building is definitely the epitome of equity because you're giving our, your students access to the world, the ability to make connections. Um, you're like, what I'm thinking about right now is like, if you're reading a text, uh, you, the only way that you can really make meaning with it is if you can make connections to other information, you know, right. It's all Velcro and knowledge sticks to knowledge. And so if you're not opening up that world and you're only sticking to like being able to lift words off the page, you're not going to be able to make those meaningful connections to really be able to learn from the words that you're lifting off the page. And it's all just, it's all equally as important, but like as Margaret was sharing uh, there's, there's not enough resources or support given for this side. And yeah. that's, that's kind of, uh, I, I kind of feel like that's, that's the biggest crisis that I'm in now as a, a leader in this work is how do we make sure that the same kind of support is happening for that true knowledge building to happen? Because leveled reading leads to leveled lives. We want to expand. Um, what our students have access to and the knowledge that they're able to acquire from reading themselves.
2: Yeah. I think another thing that's bogging... sorry, Margaret. (laughs) I was just going to say another thing that's bogging us down is that there is a lot in the way of progressive educators who disagree about what knowledge should be taught, and therefore there's a lack of commitment to the idea of teaching any sort of topic in depth. And it can kind of stymie the process when we spend so much time debating rather than getting into like, what are some topics that we can plan to address really well with our students in this year who are right in front of us? And how can we build on that work in next year? Um, I think getting started is actually really challenging. So doing things like mini lessons around reading comprehension strategies feels safer and feels like less of a risk. So teachers are more likely to approach comprehension and instruction in that way um rather than feeling like they are deigning certain topics worth teaching to the students who are in front of them.
3: Yeah, that's so important. There's such a debate around like whose narrative when it mm-hmm. comes to the education that we're giving. And like mm-hmm. right now I'm reading Goldie Mohammed's Cultivating Genius. It's all it's an equity framework for culturally and historically responsive literacy, right? So it's all like I'm just thinking a lot about the different contexts people are living in mm-hmm. and the importance to like dive into multiple narratives and multiple perspectives. So that's a lot harder to systematize.
0: Yeah. I think about the leveled text and how they don't do that and how the books that kids read in high quality materials, which I think we all agree are just the, the baseline for educators at this point, um, that those texts and the the topics and the tasks that students engage in I we like to say it wit and wisdom, but um, I remember we said this in Baltimore too. It gives kids mirrors and windows, so they can see themselves in the text, but it also helps them see other worlds and different perspectives. And I don't know a a parent who would be like, "No, oh, no, you know, I don't know that I want that for my kid. <laughs> I don't know that I don't want them to see other sides, you know, other perspectives." Um, and I just to give a parent a leveled text and then to, I always think like, give them a leveled text and then give them a text that their, their kid could engage in with high quality materials. I don't think anyone is picking the leveled text because it's so much more rich in the, right. the deeper text.
3: Right. And I think in terms of like the reading rope in general, I, th- I think there's a misunderstanding about it being an either or situation and mm-hmm. Instead, it needs to be both and, but it's the modality of instruction that matters. We use decodable text for the word level reading and rich, complex text as a whole class to engage in really deep conversation. And it doesn't have to be that the child is accessing that text on their own. That's the role of the teacher yeah. is, to, is to support them by engaging in the text and, and giving them the lift of not being able,
2: like having to decode every single word in those texts. Absolutely. I think, so that's what I am firmly committed to as a first (laughs) grade teacher right now. And I will say that there's a little piece of me that's like, man, this is hard. (laughs) Like teaching a complex text aloud to students and helping them unpack really rich sentences and repack them together and use them as sentence frames Mm -hmm. for their own conversation, all of it. It takes a lot of prep. It takes a lot of planning. It takes a lot of in-the-moment decision-making, reflecting on the work that they generated at the end. It's a really intensive process. And I think it's important for us to acknowledge that the workshop model is a whole lot easier for teachers. Like I look back at those days when you could just talk for maybe 12 minutes in a quick little mini lesson and send those kiddos <laughs> off to read independently and the yeah. books that they supposedly could read independently for like 40 minutes of peace and quiet or like conferring <laughs> like- one-on-one with students. Like was yeah. a much cushier deal than what I'm doing You don't even you know? need to read those uh-huh.
0: books. Like I remember not, like you couldn't physically read all those books that you were like yep. handing out to kids every day. So you were just... It was you yeah, pumping bump, them like, through. Tell
2: this book from me. Tell me what's going on in this book. Are you drawing any inferences without actually knowing the text and whether or not what they were telling you was legit, um, or whether or not they were making enough meaning from it?
1: So, Margaret, I know everyone on this call, I think, knows this already, but just for any listeners out there, like why why did you switch from that model? Like, what is what was not working there? Like you just said, it's easier for teachers and it seems lovely. <laughs> so why why switch?
2: So for me personally, what happened was that I realized that while I had been a fourth grade teacher and my students came to me reading and they left reading a little bit better, I started to realize as I was diving into the reading research, I could have done a lot more for them, that they weren't getting the kind of accelerated the gains they could have gotten had I been more focused And making sure that all students were working with grade level or above text and all of the instructional minutes that I had devoted to reading or to the content areas. So I felt like I was getting gains from my kids, but I didn't know that better was even possible. Mm. And now for me as a first grade teacher, the options are much different, right? Like I have a lot of kids who came to me with some learning loss in kindergarten and we're working really hard to make sure um, that they are able to crack the words that are um, in code on the page. So I have to do read-alouds. And one of the things that I think is so interesting to me is that I can really clearly see, I have a significant number of students who are delayed in their decoding development, but they are so smart and so insightful and have such great verbal reasoning. They're drawing wonderful connections. They're adding in all this background knowledge to the test. And I think about what would happen to them if instead they were just given books that were at the level of their decoding, if that was what mm-hmm. their reading experience was when they were in my class. And I realized I would be starving them. I'd be starving their minds. They wouldn't love school. They wouldn't love reading. And they wouldn't have a purpose for learning how to decode. Yeah.
0: I want to drop a mic. i was like oh that's just beautiful i keep thinking about um my own daughter and how i mean i can't even imagine margaret how exhausted you are with all of the first graders because i'm exhausted with just one and doing this (laughs) (laughs) one-on-one um but you know i think about the vocabulary that she's learning just and that she's able to read fluently like small chunks of complex text like um she, you know she's saying words like phosphorescent vast immense starry um luminous i mean words that are <laughs> out of her range as a 3rd grader but because she's has that fluency practice and had engaged with it in context so many times in this text and they're focusing on learning about the sea and she knows a lot about it and can can envision, can visualize, can use those strategies to gain that knowledge. Um, I see it firsthand. And it, it is, you're giving them the, you're giving them a purpose for, I loved how you said that, a purpose for decoding.
2: It was really beautiful today. My students were sharing their poetry aloud with each other and giving some feedback um, so we could revise. And one of the students, I'm going to have to paraphrase just a little bit. I don't remember exactly verbatim, but his, one of his lines was, um, at dusk, the sun is below the horizon and the owls wake up. And I listened to that. I was like, That was straight poetry, like not even little kid poetry. That was actual real poetry (laughs) that came out of this little six year old's voice. (laughs) And we're like, okay, so what compliments do you have for him? What suggestions do you have for revising? And lots of the kids were talking about, like, I think he should write about as the moon's coming out and the nocturnal animals are waking up. What happened? They're giving all these suggestions for an additional verse. And I realized we never could have that kind of conversation in a guided reading lesson. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. only happening oh. because we're targeting the language comprehension strands separate from the decoding. Um, and the kids are really realizing that they have a reason for learning phonics because they want to encode, too. They want to write these sentences that they have in their minds.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, they want to express themselves.
0: Ah. Uh. Can you just like message us every day and be like, this child did this.
2: Oh my God. I would <laughs> love to I'm make you listen to <laughs> my kids learn how to decode too. Cause you gotta, you gotta hear the brutal stuff too. You
0: know? <laughs> yeah. First grade is such a great turning point. <laughs> I'm wondering, like, obviously we have built this knowledge and we've done so by forming a cohort with each other, you know, you two, us two, and a greater cohort around us who understands that we need to systematically build knowledge over time. But I'm curious what you think about how can we support teachers and leaders in understanding that high quality instructional materials are equity? Like, I think, um, Lonnie, I'm pretty sure you said in our pre-call, feeling equitable is different than being equitable. And I'm going to make a shirt because <laughs> love that. I love that so I'm going to just hand it true.
3: to you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's so true. I come up upon this often in equity conversations and teachers really wanting to have like full autonomy over what they're doing in their classroom because they feel many times like they know exactly what's best for the kids, right? Mm-hmm. When we all want to believe that that's true. And I think that there are some things that Like many professions, every profession, there's new research, there's new information. We need to continuously professionalize ourselves um, and within the teaching profession to understand what actually is equitable for our students and then lean into that and make that our own. I think that high quality instructional materials are essential, but they're definitely a baseline and they're only the first step because it's teachers that teach kids. It's not programs that teach kids. That's right. So as, as teachers and leaders, we need to, well, as leaders, we need to advocate and make sure that our teachers have the materials they need and then are given the support to implement and the support to understand the, the learners in their classroom mm-hmm. to make sure that the content and the instruction is relevant and purposeful um, and to move the mark for the kids in their classrooms. Um, I, so yeah, it's a baseline and it's not everything. And it requires a lot of training, a lot of coaching to really, I, I experienced it myself. I, I have a lot of guilt looking back at what I wasn't doing for kids and really needed, um, a coach and a leader who could support me in understanding why these materials were high quality and how to implement them
0: and you're a leader who really walks with your teachers i'm making a i think a pretty good assumption that you probably are sitting in pds with them um alongside them learning um and i i can't underscore enough how your voice reflects that because in like thinking about where things may go off course, there's there's so many levels, right? There's the curriculum, there's the students, there's the teacher, there's the leaders, and then there's the big district leaders. And it get, kind of gets kind of hairy when there's lots of um, cooks in the kitchen or chefs in the kitchen. Um, yeah. But that leader piece is a really integral piece because that leader is the foundation for the, for the building and really sets the tone. And I, I'd love to hear like when you're... Um, When you're working with teachers, like how, how do you get that message across that like feeling equitable is different than being equitable? Um, I just, I think that that's, it's so, it's such a challenge to change thoughts, to change practice, you know, and it's so ingrained.
3: Yeah, I think it's really clearly and transparent, transparently articulating my priorities And getting on the same path with my teachers and just saying, like, okay, my big values right now are, like, critical literacy. And what that means is, like, everyone having all the skills they need to access the world. And I know a lot about it. I'm going to learn with you and, like, let's do this together and change the trajectory of the students in your classroom's lives. I talk a lot about how there's a lot of um, my teachers are super invested in like the whole child and social emotional learning. And, and I, I am too. And we talk about how critical literacy builds that, how, how much power it is and how much more focus and attention a student and like investment and motivation when they have the skills to access both what's going on in the classroom and like later learning and when they're like, excited about the content, when, when they're reading books about the ocean or about space or, or some like really cool, exciting ideas, yeah. change makers, whatever the unit is. Um, so I think it's really about communicating my priorities, understanding, communicating my values and supporting each teacher by understanding their values and priorities and getting aligned. And then figuring out what the gaps are in terms of knowledge and tools to get students to meet the outcomes that we both want for them.
1: Yeah. I love that you see those as integrated. You know, I think we often put them in their own little box, right? Like social emotional learnings over here and we do it for five minutes a day. (laughs) Um, And I just, I mean, I love that you can put those pieces together and make it real and
3: <laughs> it's it's definitely integrated. I I think on our 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 call together Margaret was talking about a study. Um will you talk about that Margaret the study around phonological awareness for kindergartners?
2: Oh yeah, so we um in our community of practice, we were looking at some data where they disaggregated 5th grade office referrals. And what they found was the greatest predictor of how many office referrals a child would receive was their kindergarten phonemic awareness data. Oh, wow. And if their scores had not met cut points, so if they came into kindergarten, kindergarten ready, and at mid-year they hadn't been receiving the high-quality instruction they needed to continue growing, so if they dropped from being at benchmark to below or in need of intervention, those were the kids who were most likely to experience behavior issues, um, dysregulation issues in the upper grades. And I see that a lot, actually, where I start noticing, um, for me as a coach when I was observing lessons or for me as a teacher now as I'm delivering them, realizing that when kids feel like their intelligence isn't being respected or their needs aren't being addressed or they're not being intellectually stimulated or they're not feeling connected to their teacher and a relationship – the behaviors go off the charts. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that I'm really realizing is how important it is for us to see that the behavior is actually often a symptom of the instruction that's happening in school. Mm -hmm. And I was just having a conversation last night um, with some colleagues about how we seem to be doing as educators, a pattern of behavior where we're discussing trauma in the same way that poverty was discussed in the same way that race was discussed in previous decades, where it's a reason to not have to deliver instruction that meets the student's potential.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: And how important it is for us to be able to think about this as an equity issue that every child who is enrolled in school for 12 years is entitled to 12 years worth of education, rather than us deciding that we're going to write this one off because they're just not in a good space to be able to receive it.
0: Yeah, and 12 years worth of grade level texts and 12 years worth of the entire reading rope. Yeah. And yeah, I just want to clarify, I know you let, you know, but for those listening, like it is not 12 years worth of um, this group of students gets to read this and this group of students gets to read that. This is a a full comprehensive 12 years of school. And I think what I always think about is this is bigger than just me as a teacher in my classroom with these 20, 25, 30 kids in front of me. This is so much bigger. This is about this, like one kid's experience throughout their entire career. And and thank you for naming that so eloquently. It, it, is, it is about 12 years of their life, which is a really long time. And going back to that study, I'm appalled and a little bit nervous that we only have that like not that we only have that little bit of time, but that's really a little scary that it felt a little safer mm-hmm. to say like third grade, you know, that that benchmark at third grade. It felt like we had more time, but it's really important that we get to work right away with our kiddos. Yeah,
3: yeah. and if I'm thinking about Scarborough's Rope again, the word decoding does not have to be a part of 12 years of instruction. Mm-hmm. If done well, you know, by the time a child is seven, they're a fluent reader, at least with enough skills to like we were talking about before being able to make meaning of what they're reading and like they'll do morphology and they'll, they'll like still have fun with words and get more like, but that will support more with meaning and unlocking um, like true deep understanding. But word level decoding needs to be the foundation in the early years. And if not, like what you were saying, Melissa, as an upper grade educator, um, we need to make sure the upper grade teachers have the skills to address those missing pieces from the foundational years that didn't get met. But ideally, you won't have to as much because it will be taken care of in the foundational years.
2: You know, something that you're saying, Lonnie, reminds me of um, about maybe five years or so when I was first starting to dive into the reading science Um I started to Google trying to find out, like, what percentage of kids should we really expect to learn how to read? It was Mm -hmm. like I came from a school where I was expecting about 80 percent of my fourth graders to be proficient, according to state tests, came into a school environment where it was between two and a half and three percent of students who are at the school. And I was like, what should we be expecting? And the moment that I started um, realizing from Louisa Mote's upwards of 95% from other um, reading scientists who have talked about 98% or above, like the percentage of students who are capable of learning how to read, if only they receive the instruction that they need and deserve, is so much higher than we as a profession have uh, deigned to be good. And I think a lot about the fact that i don't think that i think it's empowering to teachers to realize how high our bar should be because that's what we've always wanted like i've never met a teacher who came into the profession who didn't believe like every child can learn and i'm going to be the teacher who is going to get all my kids there But somehow over the years of struggling with inadequate materials and inadequate professional development, when we experience failure year after year, or some portion of our kids failing year after year, somehow we become numb to that. It's not shocking or horrifying anymore. And I think we need to figure out a way to make that the case again, to make it so that we're looking at um, our student data with the expectation that we're going to get all of them there. And if we don't know how to do it, that we're asking for help.
3: Yeah. That's, that's so true, Margaret. When I was teaching third grade and got 70%, this is like before I really knew.
2: It was like amazing, right? Instead of like, wow, that was a C. "C." This
3: is is exceptional. This is outstanding. I was like a model for my school as a third year teacher, getting 70% of my kids. I'm like, there's almost a solid third that didn't meet the mark or like didn't mm. get there. And that's, that's really problematic. And and so it shouldn't be 70% as exceptional. It should be 95, 98% is exceptional. And that's definitely the bar we need to hold.
1: I'm wondering, I don't know if you all have the answers to this, so feel free to say you don't, Um, but I, Lonnie, I'm back to your introduction. I'm thinking of when you said like you did TFA, so you didn't get that much training. I also did TFA, but I um, was certified undergrad, but honestly, I didn't know what I was doing my first year either. I don't know that I got any more training than you probably did, even though with four years of undergrad and I'm... Oh, what am I almost 20 years into my career and I am just taking letters training now Uh, you know I feel like wit and wisdom was a revelation when that came out for the blue part of the rope and I I just like (laughs) like what do we do for the teaching profession to get more teachers where you all worked really hard to get how do we how do we do that (laughs) No pressure. I don't
3: know. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we're, not, so we're not necessary. asking really
0: crazy questions.
3: <laughs> it's so necessary. I, I like. I think when we started doing this work just about five years ago, it was something like ten percent of teacher prep programs um, taught students what's happening in in their brains while they're learning to read. And now it's something That's like insane. 30%, 30%. Still it insane. Is insane. It's, <laughs> I feel there's a change in tide. There's yeah. definitely like, I am now coaching um, some teach for America teachers who have required courses in the science of reading that That's I so don't have 11, 12 years ago. Um, okay. So I, what do we do? We need to make it mandated for every teacher to go through a course on the science of reading and to get coaching and support they need to really understand the brain science we need to professionalize um the profession in that way yeah
2: i think one of the problems that we set ourselves up for is that i kid you not within the first semester of my teacher preparation program i was told that i was an expert and that i knew the students in my student teaching class best And that I was supposed to use my professional judgment to guide my instruction. (laughs) Like my ego was inflated from the moment I decided to become a teacher, um, which is a really dangerous thing to do. Because Mm -hmm. when you have people who are not experienced, told that what they need to do is fake it till they make it, we end up with a profession that's really defensive. And so it's hard for us to therefore admit like, well, we've been doing this thing for a long time, but not as well as maybe we might have. That means that kids slip through the cracks and we feel bad about that. That means that we didn't live up to our potential, even though we were working so hard and we were so tired as we were doing this um, labor of love. And I think that one of the things that I really hope for is that one, teacher prep can be improved, but two, we can start getting some of the narratives out of teacher education So that we can stop saying that we as a profession are dependent on observational data rather than objective data. If we could get to the point where teachers, instead of looking to somebody down the hall for advice about what to do, or maybe someone on a message board or some Mm -hmm. materials on Teachers Pay Teachers, if we instead could actually like... Understand what a peer-reviewed journal is and know which ones are good and get the information from there and be part of professional learning communities that are learning how to put the research into practice. If we felt really truly supported by researchers and figuring out how to implement all that's being learned about what happens in students' minds as they're learning how to read, if we could then translate that into classroom practice, I think we'd get a whole lot farther and part of the problem is that teaching has been such a relationship-based profession. And it makes it so that it's very difficult for us to look at um, data that's coming from sources outside of other teachers. It's difficult for us to listen to, um, to really anything other than someone who's already in the club and already agrees with us. Mm-hmm. We need to be a lot more open to outside messages about what we could be doing to serve our kids.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think the leadership training is so important, too. Like, there's a lot of, of leaders. So teachers, even with a great background, are landing in environments that are not conducive to their success. Or like, you said this the other day, Margaret, like, we no longer uh, should a well-managed class just be considered evidence of good teaching if student data isn't strong. And that was really powerful to me when you said that. There's a lot of sites in which leaders are just looking for, like, well-managed classrooms and they on on walkthroughs bring bring folks into those classrooms Mm -hmm. but there's no connection to actually the impact that they're making um and it needs to be both right we need supportive classrooms for student learning that are well managed um but the content needs to be there and our lens for the instruction we want to see needs to be clear
0: yeah i i'll tell a quick story i heard um um i was at the the public swim club um, this summer, and a mom was talking about um, Baltimore City public schools, and you know, saying, um, oh, "I don't know if I'd, ever, I don't think I'd ever want my kid to go there." And I was like, "Oh well, why not?" And I mean, obviously, she didn't know that I had worked there. <laughs> so I was like, <laughs> "Like why not?" And she's like, oh, "You know, they're just kids are just always yelling, and it's very loud." And I said, honestly, I'd give anything. For my daughter to go there because the quality of the materials and the, the quality of professional learning that the teachers are receiving is more than anywhere else in this entire state i said and i'd put my entire life on that and she like looked at me i was like i worked there it is they they are using two of the best high quality curricula and there's nowhere else in the state that are doing that so a lot of times folks just judge on the climate versus or what they hear about the climate um, and a loud classroom and a noisy classroom can be a learning focused classroom. And really that's how we all process. I mean, we're sitting here talking, <laughs> 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 processing information and um, sharing our thoughts and learning from each other. And that's what we want kids to be able to do as well. Um, and it, it's just that conversation really struck me as um, the outsider of the parent who is just this like, you know, this person who's very important in the child's life, but has no idea about what to look for in terms of what they're actually learning each day. And and if your kid hasn't read a book all year long, like, mine hasn't in her school, then we need to be doing something about that. That's a problem. The baseline needs to change and we do need to step up as a profession to make sure that every child is reading, um, not just a book, but books that matter and books that are important about topics that are going to teach them about life. So there's my rant, but.
3: (laughs) Agreed. There's your mic drop moment. Yeah.
0: (laughs) So I'm wondering, um, Like, in order to do this, I know y'all mentioned um, professional learning as a key lever. What are your thoughts on uh, professional learning? I'd love to hear from both of your perspectives, teacher and leader.
2: Well, so I'm in an interesting position in that I deliver professional development, and I was a literacy coach, and I'm back in the classroom now. And I'm realizing that I'm going back in a lot of ways to my old habits of the teacher of expecting that PD is not going to be engaging, <laughs> <laughs> expecting that what I really want to be doing is like providing feedback on student work rather than attending to the task that's at hand. Um, And I think that that's one of the biggest problems is that we haven't really done a good job of making sure that professional learning for teachers is both engaging and going to result in outcomes for students. Mm -hmm. So I feel like sometimes I'll go to PDs and they're really engaging and it's super fun, but I didn't walk away with any new strategies other than like an engagement strategy for students rather than like a real instructional strategy to use. Um, And other times, sometimes it feels like a waste of time. And teachers, I think, generally show up to PD expecting their time is going to be wasted. And that's the biggest shame because we are so in need of professional learning as a a profession in order to be able to grow and do better by our kids. So I think one of the things that I would really like is for there to be a clear um, message to leaders at school sites and anybody who's providing professional development that there has to be a scope and sequence, like a genuine plan for the year. <laughs>
0: So that when teachers are
2: showing up into a space for professional learning, they know it's going to build on the previous session and that they're (laughs) going to be held accountable for implementing back when they're in their classroom and that the next session is going to build on the learning from this one. Like, I really think that teachers need to be treated more the way we expect students to be treated, where there's a clear instructional plan, clear outcomes, and clear um, checks for understanding. And we don't seem to do that generally. Mm -hmm. You don't like those one-off PDs, Margaret? (laughs) I mean, the truth is, I like the one-off PDs, especially if they come with bagels. Like, it's not that I don't enjoy it. It's that they're not actually good for me.
3: Yeah. (laughs) The bagels, too. (laughs) No, I was going to say the same thing, really. Like, there's so much one and done Mm -hmm. that I've experienced as a teacher and as a leader, and uh, true knowledge builds. And it's... Not even just from session to session, but between sessions. We need to like continuously be lifting up the ideas, implementing, thinking about what worked, what didn't, tweaking, refining, um, and going through a a clear continuum. Uh, Margaret and I, when we were leading PD for our cohort, we went uh, like across Scarborough's reading rope, but every time like went back to, to data connected to the time before. Um, and made sure that it was knowledge that was building, and that we were making sure to check for for deep understanding and application of practice.
0: Yeah, that reminds me. Um, in my role at Grapevines, before the pandemic hit, we did a lot of guided observations with leaders, and that was such a great way to be in classrooms and help leaders unpack like this curriculum is more than just a checklist. It is not like a walk-in and let's look at the objective. Check. Let's look. Oh, are all students reading this book? Check. Like it is not that at all. Like we have to know deeply the curriculum and then we have to understand the approach and be able to support the teacher. Um, and that guided observation was always a really pivotal piece because so many aha moments came for the leaders in having um, conversations with other leaders. And it was, it was really learning focused um, in a very low stakes way. And that was just always, I think, one of the most Pivotal pieces um, in being in classrooms with leaders, and I really appreciated that um, because I felt like we could help them see what they can expect to see if we're using high quality materials.
2: Mm-hmm. I know for both me and Lonnie, we had never been principals before we were leading this cohort of principals and literacy coaches. And (laughs) at first we were pretty shy about leaning into professional development for principals. Like I was nervous trying to tell a principal how to Mm. do his or her job, given that I had never done that before. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And then I realized like, Well, I do know how to tell them what a literacy coach needs in order to be successful. So I know how to tell them how to create those conditions. And I do know how to tell them what needs to be in place in the learning environment for teachers to be successful and for kids to be successful. And there was this one moment when I was walking with a principal and we were going from class to class and we were about to go into the kindergarten classroom and she looked at me and she's like, I just got to talk to you. I have no idea what I'm looking for. And I was like, thank you. Like, thank you so much for telling me that we're going to do it together. We're going to go in. I'll, I'll tell you what I'm noticing. You tell me what you're noticing. And then I started to realize once she was open with me like that, the more principals I talked with, the more they were open Mm -hmm. saying like, they actually hadn't been well-prepared as classroom teachers they weren't super well-prepared in their credentialing to become principals. They weren't super well-prepared in the PD that they were receiving as principals. And it's a lot of, um, I mean, I hate to say it, but we're kind of the blinds leading the blind. And I think one of the things that we need to do is to make sure that all of the objectives for teachers, what we're trying to accomplish with teachers and PD are made clear to the leaders so that they know what they're trying to reinforce because otherwise what ends up happening is school leaders are told like, look for this. No, this month you're going to look for this. No, this month you're mm-hmm. going to look for this. And the experience from the teacher, like i Lonnie, who was the teacher who was like, it was so funny. She's like, wait, am I trying to strive for five with back and forth conversation or am I stating my learning objective really? Clearly? <laughs> or am I supposed to be maximizing instructional minutes? What am I supposed to be doing for this walkthrough?
3: Yeah. And I was like, oh my be- gosh, you poor thing. Especially with such so many conflicting messages. Like you were so talking, many. Lori, about like a, like a coach might have a really clear mm-hmm. priority, but maybe the, the principal is not super aware or like maybe there were a middle school educator that is now a principal for an elementary school and has no background in teaching a child to read. That was like very prevalent in the district that we're working in. Yeah. And so like... Yeah, so they're getting conflicting messages and then maybe the district has a new priority or like whatever the, the shiny new idea is for the moment. And so our teachers are, are overwhelmed and, and grappling with so many, like what is right and what, what do I need to know for, for this group of people who are walking through instead of like clear aligned goals that they know are impacting their students.
2: Well, and I've just noticed myself slipping back into some bad old behavior as a teacher. Um, A colleague of mine coined it prapathy. It's when you're proactively apathetic. So (laughs) we sometimes will go into PD with like prapathy. And what we're really wondering is like, are you going to hold me accountable for doing this thing? Or is this going to be a thing that's going to blow over? And a lot of times Mm -hmm. there can be months where a teacher is just waiting for this curriculum adoption to fall through so I really won't have to crack the manual open or just waiting for the assessment to change so no one's really going to notice how my kids did on this particular measure or expecting that this Mm -hmm. thing you told me I was going to have to bring to our PLC we're not really going to look at so I shouldn't worry about it anyway. Um, But we have to get rid of that propathy because all of that Time is time that students deserved better from us. This waiting it out yeah. thing is causing mm-hmm. the status quo to just continue and continue.
1: I remember in Baltimore, it was it was like six months into adopting wit and wisdom, and there were rumors that we were we were going to get rid of it after the first year. I'm like. <laughs>
2: We barely even yes. started. Yeah, we didn't. Do that. <laughs> but those rumors were grounded in some past experience where that was yes. possible. Yep.
1: Yes. Correct. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I
0: remember walking into a classroom and um the teacher had the book out and like if you just kind of glanced around you you know back at, quote back in the day you'd be like, "Oh wow, this is she's definitely doing this like curriculum. This is she's she's Dry, she's jiving she's going for it and uh, like I was really excited to see the lesson so I had previewed the lesson and I was like this isn't this like is am I like missing something like this isn't the lesson so then I'm like looking around I'm like I, I don't see and like I just saw zero evidence like I'm going through the whole thing I'm frantically like flipping to the lesson three lessons previously you know two lessons forward and I'm like what's happening and um I mean she she was, like you said, f- falling back into those old habits of, oh, well, I got the book, I'm going to teach it, you know, and not, you know, using that plan um, to fidelity, integrity, however we all want to say it, um, but at least giving it a go, and mm-hmm. um, that was that was like a moment. I was like, oh, okay, we got to do some professional learning here. We have to help her understand, <laughs> mm-hmm,
2: <laughs> you know, these. Yeah.
0: Um, why we have a lesson plan and and what it is and what it means and how to access it and how to support her feel and feel comfortable with doing it for her, doing it with her students and for her students, because she deserves to be that professional who can elevate this text for her kiddos.
2: And I I think one of the things that um, is really sad is that when we're in teacher professional development, like especially pre-service, we're told to write our own lessons or write our own units. And so that actually becomes the Mm -hmm. default status. And what happens is that one, you've internalized it because it came from you internally. And then two, what ends up happening is you can't be held accountable for doing something that wasn't comfortable for you. You were the one who decided Mm -hmm. what the text was going to be or what questions you were going to ask or whatever. So everything's within your own comfort zone. And it's actually when you're teaching a lesson that somebody else developed that it opens you up for more judgment, right? Like there's this, beli- like, did you mm-hmm. do it right? Is right. only possible yes. when you weren't the person who decided what right was? Mm-hmm. And I remember um, my f- the first few p- programs that I picked up where I was held accountable in any way for teaching it as written, I was nervous. Mm-hmm. I was nervous about someone coming in. I was worried about the feedback that I would get. And it felt much more comfortable for me to innovate and write my own stuff. But what ended up happening was I started to realize that what I thought my students could do was different than what an outsider would think was typical for the grade level and what the expectation mm-hmm. should be for on-grade level tasks.
3: Mm-hmm. And that's when fidelity becomes an F word. Like when you <laughs> yeah. have the culture or, or climate at a school that like you're supposed to write your own lessons. And then, like, you can handle the curriculum that there's a lot of pushback that we have to navigate, especially when the rigor is – or the bar is raised.
0: But it's so innate because it was – I mean, I remember being in my teacher prep program, and we developed unit plans. We, mm-hmm. you know, wrote yeah. all kinds I – mean, I don't remember – Ever picking up a lesson and having to teach it, unless maybe it was like a math lesson and it was one small blip of a student teacher experience. Like from the get-go, you walk into your teacher prep program and it is like, you get to be creative, make a take a pizza (laughs) box and make a phonics activity. I mean, that was an assignment of mine. So Yes. Among others, but, you know, <laughs> so yeah, no, I <laughs> totally
2: remember I didn't have the pizza box that I mean, we definitely had to make our own lotteria cards. We had to do mm-hmm. like our own um, collages grounded <laughs> in social studies or whatever it was. But I um when I had that sabbatical as a curriculum developer, all of a sudden I was like, wait. People get paid full-time salaries to write (laughs) lessons and then go into lots of classes and pilot them to find out how well they resonate with teachers and with students. And then they go back and they revise and then they try it again. And then they go back and they revise. Like what was happening for me as a classroom teacher when I was writing my own lesson plans is I had to wait a year to try it again and do it better. versus being given something that had already been tried many, many, many times and was likely to be more successful. Um, But I don't think that that's the way things are communicated to teachers. I think we often see curriculum as insulting because it's Mm -hmm. taking away our autonomy as teachers rather than like you are being given this program and it's like handing us like a high quality script to an actor and yeah. you get yeah. the privilege of playing the role in Hamlet or whatever. Um, and it's the, your delivery. That's what matters so much.
0: I love that's that. That's a that great me. way to put it. <laughs> you're the, a, you're the A-lister.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You got the privilege of a high quality script, but it's not because we don't respect you as a professional it's because we do, and we want you to start off with tools that are going to make sure that you and your kids are successful.
3: Yeah, we want your energy to be in delivery and in like in the differentiation that's necessary or in like the the, the actual implementation, not in the design. Someone else's job is that
0: so how do we navigate these materials because they take a lot of intellectual preparation. Well worth it um, in order to do what you just said, but how do we navigate them? How do we I don't know
2: because I, so I currently have high quality materials, according to ed reports, it's all green. And let me tell you what I'm going to be spending tonight up until probably like (laughs) one o'clock in the morning trying to plan my lessons for next week. Um, And I'm lucky that it will only be that long because we have a short week next week. But I feel like the amount of time I'm spending a good two hours for every 45 minutes to an hour of the lesson. It's because it's my first year ever teaching the program. But also because I feel like a lot of the professional development isn't grounded in learning how to deliver the lessons. And I think we need to figure out a way to make sure that the professional development that teachers receive is aligned with the curricular materials and helps us feel prepared to use it. I feel like a lot of times what ends up happening is you leave PD with nothing that's going to help you the next day with your kids, rather than leaving feeling like, well, tomorrow's going to be even better because of the work that I just did here today with my colleagues.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Especially in your first year, right? I mean, (laughs) really nothing else you need to be learning in your first year of implementing curriculum.
3: Yeah. I'm thinking about how important it is that, not only is the curricular the curriculum training solid and supports teachers with the next day instruction, but if teachers don't have good in- curriculum, that they have professional development that, regardless of what falls in their lap, they can make instructional decisions that will support mm-hmm. um, the growth of their students, yeah. and can weed out like what do I need to supplement or like what do I need to advocate for at my site.
0: Yeah, because in a perfect world, we would we would want that all green in front of every kiddo, but. We know because of lots of reasons, at least for the next couple of years, like I'll cross my fingers for that one, um, that, you know, all kids may not be able to, to have that due to funding or whatever it might be. Um, do you all have any like quick tips or quick thoughts on that, like recommendations? I know. Yes, I do.
2: <laughs> so when I went into curriculum development, they were talking about the front matter of their program. and I'm like, the front matter, what's that? like, it's the pages in the beginning of the manual that tells you what this curriculum is all about. I'm like, oh, you mean the pages that you skip as you're trying (laughs) to get to the lesson, right? And they're like, oh gosh, (laughs) Margaret, like, no, those are the pages for our heart and soul out, like (laughs) helping you as the teacher understand what our instructional vision is and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, so I should probably read that front matter stuff. Um. So anyways, it turns out there's really good stuff in there. So any program that you have, if you spend the time reading the front matter, you can start looking to see what their ideas are about how students learn how to read and what the role of the teacher should be. And when you look there, you're often able to find out what the holes in the program are likely to be. So, for example, with a program that I'm currently using, talks a lot about reading being a visual process And that was my red flag to realize this program is not strong in phonemic awareness. Mm. In fact, there is not phonemic awareness past midway through first grade, which is a huge problem. But I wouldn't have known necessarily to look for it unless I had read the description of how they thought kids learn how to read. And like the program that Lonnie and I had before this curriculum adoption Uh, They talked about the magic of kids learning how to read. So kids learn to read by reading and the magic unfolds. And like, that was her big red flag. Like, actually you just should have a wand and pray because we don't have schools here to help you teaching these kids how to read. Um, So I actually think it would be a really good use of teacher's time to sit in a PLC and to look at the materials that they have and to read that front matter and see how it aligns with the research that is known about how kids learn how to read. Um, I think if we're conscious consumers of curriculum and we understand that what we're being given is something that is likely to have holes in it and it's for us to figure out what those holes are and how we're going to patch them mm-hmm. or okay. are we going to just decide this is something that's not appropriate for us and for kids because we deserve better.
3: Mm-hmm. I think they're really great I, I couldn't agree more. I think a, a good resource for doing that sifting is the reading league put out an, an amazing tool a curriculum evaluation tool mm-hmm. that like you could look through the curriculum that you have read the front matter and look for green flags or red flags and then make instructional decisions based on that
0: yeah, yep. yeah. that's a great great suggestion as well that was the recent one right
2: Yeah, it came out just a little while ago. There are other resources, too, that you can pull from. There's some great rubrics that are available for looking through curriculum. But I think the idea of not just looking too often, teachers are sold promotional materials. So it's somebody Mm -hmm. who has something to gain that is coming in to tell you about the program, (laughs) or you're being given some glossy, you know, pamphlets that have pictures of cute kids on it, and you're being sold on something. Rather than being able to look in a way that is purely objective, does this have all of the things that are likely to result in a recipe that is likely to result in the maximum number of kids learning how to read?
0: I like that idea because it really takes the teacher out of it and focuses on student outcomes. And I mean, can you imagine a world where 95 to 98% of every student in every classroom, like
2: yeah, those were the I outcomes, can.
0: yeah it's like so promising that we can do it oh okay well I feel like this is a really good time to um bring it to a close um we like had the best time talking to you both and it didn't hurt that we were hanging out with the glasses of wine uh either (laughs) but would you share with our listeners each share a piece of advice um just leave them with one final thought
3: Sure. Um, one thing I'm thinking about is the Martin Luther King Jr. quote, the time is always right to do what's right. And that sometimes it feels like a daunting task to make this shift. But there's there are kids in our classroom that need this support today. And so I, I just want to strongly encourage everyone listening to, to take that first step to unpack the curriculum that you have to advocate for the professional development that you need and start implementing practices that you know, or come to know really make sure that we can get as close as possible to that 95% of kids learning how to read.
2: I feel like in order to be able to do that, another really good step for all of us to do is to, be really clear about the things that we don't know and to ask questions about it. So I think, um, one of the things that I've been discovering particularly in the past year is realizing how many experts there are in fields of cognitive psychology or speech and language pathology or linguists who are actually really wanting to help teachers. And there is a whole community of people in fields that are not our own who are cheering us on and wanting to try to make a difference. And if you're wondering, um, You know, what, uh, how fluency and comprehension are related, or if you're wondering how to teach grammar and what would be a good way to go about approaching it with the students you have in front of you, or if you're wondering um, anything about is a child developing in a typical way or not, and what should I do about it? that reaching out to other fields is a really good way to go, like checking in with a speech and language pathologist at your school, checking in with a university, checking in um, with anybody that you can reach out to. There's lots of forums. Spell Talk is a great place to post questions um, where you can actually get information that isn't easily accessible if you just go educator to educator. And I think one of the things that I would love for all of us to be able to do is to feel comfortable, like Lonnie was saying, to embrace that. It's okay for us not to know. Actually, our data shows we don't know. (laughs) Looking at the number of kids who are not successful right now, it is apparent to our nation that we don't necessarily know the best way to approach things. But what's not okay is for us to settle for that. It's fine for us to say that we need more high-quality materials. We need better professional development. We need our questions answered. There's more research to be done. All of those things are fine. But we have to be proactive and not accept the status quo the way it is. Mm-hmm.
1: You all are doing such amazing work. Just <laughs> blown away by you two. We
2: have yeah, fun can
0: doing do it. Right? So <laughs> 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 Will you will you both promote yourselves really quickly? Share share where people can find you. Um, any information you want to share about the Right to Read Project?
2: Yeah. So we're the Right to Read Project. We have our blog on our website, and then we're also carried by Reading Rockets. And then we also have our fingers and all sorts of other fun projects. So we work with the Barksdale Reading Institute, the Reading League, talk, Teachers Top 10 Tools, um, and Hill Learning Center as part of an organization called the Big Dippers. So we have a short course on the science of reading people are able to access. We do professional development I think one of the things that's so fun for us is that we're realizing that in order to help the maximum number of teachers and administrators and students, you kind of have to have your fingers in everything. Like it's <laughs> professional development, it's teacher to teacher communication, it's supporting school leaders, It's all, it's got to be all of it. Um, we don't seem to be good at saying no to things. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's what I was going to ask. Like, when do you guys sleep? Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, we all. I have another full time job, too. <laughs> I know. <laughs> we yeah. sleep sometimes. I was joking with a friend about how, like, maybe the memoir title should be like, our boundaries are porous. (laughs) Really bad at
0: creating boundaries. Saying no is not our strength.
2: (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Um,
0: That can be your book, yes.
2: (laughs) No, I'm supposed to practice it. I was just counseled that no is a complete sentence. And that we should practice it. And that it's actually easier than saying yes, because there are fewer phonemes involved. Oh,
1: I like that. That's great. Well, we're
2: very glad that you didn't say no to us. That you no, we don't say no.
1: <laughs> we got in before they learned about saying before no. Before your no. <laughs>
2: we're still practicing. I mean, it's fun for
0: us. We love this. So. Oh my gosh. Well, thank you both. This is just it's such so a great, treat. I feel like I've just been talking with old friends and um, <laughs> we really haven't known you for that long, much more than like two hours of our lives. So thank
2: you. <laughs> You're so welcome. It was good to hang out with you. Happy Friday. Yeah. You you too.
0: Enjoy your weekend.
1: Bye. <laughs> Bye.